Well, we've heard today about uh, Mexico and Central America and about the effect of the drug war on the, the United States, uh, its people, and its institutions. There are other significant fronts, of course, on the war on drugs. Uh, <coughs> and uh, one of them is uh, South America, which has long been fighting uh, the drug war and has a lot of experience that uh, we, can, we can learn from and that can help us think through uh, this issue which is brought, uh, which has come closer to home in the case of Mexico. Afghanistan and, and Pakistan are also significant fronts uh, for the U.S.-led anti-drug uh, campaign uh, with very important implications to Washington's uh, security uh, uh, strategy and its war on terror. This panel is going to specifically look at the very prominent uh, example of Colombia and specifically uh, also look at uh, Planned Colombia. How has that uh, worked out in the, in the evaluation of our speaker today? Uh, it will also look at um, the changing politics around this issue in Uruguay. And lastly, we are going to hear from one of the world's leading experts on uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan and how the drug war there is, is feeding into that very complex situation. So let me uh, begin by introducing our first speaker, Enrique Gomez Hurtado, who is a former senator from Colombia's conservative party. He has been uh, director of the newspaper El Siglo and uh, the magazine Síntesis Económica and the dean of the faculty of economics at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. Uh, he has also taught at uh, various uh, departments at other uh, universities and has been a council member in Bogota and an amb ambassador in France. He was also the chairman of the Conservative Party, has authored numerous uh, essays and books, uh, including uh, one specifically about the tragedy of drugs. And he was appointed uh, as a member of the commission in the Senate to study drug trafficking in Colombia. Please help me welcome Mr. Gomez Hurtado. Good afternoon. My voice is not in the best, in better condition, nor is my English, but I will do as I can to explain my point of view. There is a problem when you speak late in a forum where there has been a big consensus because all the merit go to the first speaker because all the things I wanted to say to you are already being said by others. So I try to invent something new to have you entertained. Uh, it is my belief that my position in the conference is a unique one. My brother Alvaro, presidential candidate and Colombian ambassador in Washington, Paris, Rome, and Bern, was gunned down by the mafia, their business, drug trafficking, their purpose to exercise control, control over political arena. Alvaro Gomez incessantly condemned the fact drug trafficker money was used to finance the presidential campaign of president-to-be Ernesto Samper. 
A contribution was decisive in Samper's victory over Andres Pastrana, who subsequently became incumbent <coughs> after Samper achieved his, his, his peril. Even today, the level of penetration that the mafia achieved during the Samper's administration continues to be a profoundly significant factor, both pol publicly and privately in Colombia. As you can imagine, the murder inquiry went nowhere. Nobody wanted to run the risk of seriously, seriously undertaking it. Lately, however, we have managed to achieve some significant progressions thanks to statement obtained from mafia bosses extradited to the United States and will and with the help of the enforcer uh, afforded to us by the Department of Justice. I have a problem with my eyes also. They chose to collaborate in the United States as, as doing so in Colombia will mean uh, putting themselves in grave danger. If we were to gain a greater cooperation in this field, we will be rewarded with valuable results, not only in the case of Alberto Gomez, but also to obtain a deeper understanding of how the drug traffickers operate in the political arena. In order to extensively analyze the question, I have recently published a book entitled Why Was He Killed?, which for the past eight years has been, eight months, has been the bestseller in Colombia. Considering that the understanding of the facts surrounding the case could be of great interest within the studio of drug trafficking, we now have translated the version in English, and you can find it in Amazon. The subject <coughs> in question, which is the reason for our being together, is a difficult one in that it is both renowned and has already been widely divided. It is those virtually impossible to me to share with you a thought or take a position that could be considered as original. In just a position, the risk of talking platitudes is great. Even the most motley perspectives have already been stated. This fact, notwithstanding, drugs continue to be a most serious threat to our culture, morality, and peace. It appears we have no clear advantage in our present fight against them, a situation that leads me to believe that we have taken the wrong, the wrong path. We press on, but are making no ground. I believe that there, there, <coughs> that there needs to be a cardinal change in both our battle strategy and tactics. Make no mistake, prohibition as far as drugs and other endemic substances, as has already been said here, are concerned has been and always be a failure. Endemic substances exist and will continue to exist, and they cannot be subject to prohibition or banned by the rule of law. Narcotics and man have lay in bed together since the dawn of time, 
and they will continue to feel the void left by the rational thought. Drug addiction can be controlled, fought against, managed, prevented, and cured, just like other diseases, be it biological or psychological, of which drug addiction is both. But prohibition is not the best way to, to, <coughs> to fight against that. As, uh, as I understand <coughs> it, the subject of this conference is how to, uh, how to, uh, uh, now do, I don't see. <laughs> My answer is simple. While we maintain the status quo with regards to prohibition, there will be forever a drug war. Moreover, it will always be drugs that are financing the war because it is necessary to establish a field of operation. If it could, some, by some miracle, the war is won in one country, it will always reappear in another, be it a neighbor country or a distant land. Pressure was successful brought upon, down upon Colombia with certainly ameliorated the situation. However, this only meant that business boomed elsewhere in Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. I personally don't know how grave is the situation in Venezuela and Brazil. In all of these countries, as in the case of many others, the Central America area <coughs> have been integrated in, in the multifarious <coughs> drug war. The, the mafia, which I refer, is a corrosive accident that destroys everything in his wake. The security of services, the judicial system, economic values, and the very moral fabric of society. A colossal quantity of black money appears, much uh, appears which supports unimaginable violence and a tsunami-like effect is produced on civil society and its institutions. Different scales of severity aside, the previously stated facts can affect any state or society. As I have been asked for, I will try to, to explain the Colombian case. I have to try to cut. Colombia is a country with one of the most established democracies in America. However, political life has not been free from violence, especially due to the long-lived struggle between liberals and conservatives. The violence became more prolific as a result of the 1948 Bogotazo, a virulent mass riot caused by the assassination of left-wing leader Jorge Eliezer Gaitán. An armed resistance was born. The Communist Party infiltrated this movement and went on to eventually control it. It cannot be forgotten that at this time we were in the midst of the Cold War. It was not until 1955 that the conflict between the two parties ended when Alberto Lleras Camargo and my father, Laureano Gomez, made mutual consensus and came to agreements that ended the violence. 
despite these two main parts, the guerrilla continued to be aggressive, communist attack on democracy, and were openly supported by the Soviet Union, on some occasions directly, but many, many using Cuba as a proxy. Throughout the president, presidencies of Guillermo Leon Valencia and Julio Cesar Turbay, the guerrilla were almost defeated. However, after their incumbencies, drug trafficking was born. The amoral libertarian movements that flourished during this period, the idea of which was the anarchism in France in 1968, only served to help drug trafficking. Prohibit prohibition was their slogan under which the consumption of narcotics, narcotics flourished, fostered by the mafia and by the endeavor to oust the establishment pushed by the extreme left. Remember Kent University. Demand grew, and along with it, so did supply. And how to meet this demand? Increased production in isolated areas outside control of the authorities. An easy business with an immense scope to produce profits. Two eventualities were logical consequences of the, of the situation. The drug traffickers coming into contact with the guerrilla in their death throes somewhere in the jungle and that the result of this beating. The lucrative mafia money will secure guerrilla firepower and a cost route to found the conflict. <coughs> they found the conflict necessary for their, their, their process. They were, <coughs> they were to be engaged in battle at one piece only to reappear in another, and the battle is expensive, as has been said, economically and in terms of human lives. In just a position, criminal movement through the jungle is easy. The, the, the raw material for the illegal drug is essentially a weed that grows easily and quickly. And the products required to, to make cocaine are control, are, are petrol, semen, nitric acid, and sulfuric acid, among others. All products are, co are commonly available and impossible to ban. Turning the raw material into the final product is a straightforward process that requires no sophisticated equipment and, remote and the remote nature of place in which the process is undertaken makes absolutely no difference. Thanks to prohibition, the cost of this material is fully over, over, over covered by the price of the final product. The most valuable commodity, cocaine, is a, an extremely small size and chemically stable features which make its shorter his storage and transportation of the utmost ease. And if I feel it's necessary to repeat that the production of the drug is an elemental science and with absolutely, absolutely any, and within absolutely any one reach. Producing a fine spirit is a difficult task that requires knowledge and, and tradition, a right environment, correct and maturation process, pride, and many other factors, and even more so in the case of wines or whiskey. The same could be said of fine tobacco. On the contrary, good quality cocaina does not need this condition. The simple product is the tailor, and the natural protection of the young canopy has sufficient product <coughs> to produce cocaina of the fair of the best quality. The result producing a gram 
of high-quality cocaine is cheaper than producing a gram of sugar or salt. Prohibition itself is this reason for the difference in price. And I have other things to, to say, but my time is short, and <laughs> many of those things have already been said by my predecessors. I was asked to, to talk about the, the Plan Colombia that is frequently described as a victory over, over narco-trafico. Were not for the Plan Colombia, Colombia's democracy and institution would have disappeared a long time ago. It has helped us to maintain democracy and to maintain the country standing up, but certainly is not has not been a total victory. When in the last elections, 30th of October, more than 50 candidates were killed by the mafia during the election process. There are several big circumscriptions in Colombia where where it was only one candidate candidate running, nobody there to compete with him. Those are results that cannot be called a victory. We are doing our best. We have, as was said, the second army in, in, in the continent. It costs a lot. If we were to spend that money in re-education and in other things that can improve the level of our country, the result will be much higher. To end, I am very pleased by the international consensus reflected in this event. I'm very proud of being a part of it. I worry, though, it may be a useless uh, consensus. We might be in the condition of the naked king. Everybody knows the truth, but nobody dares to tell it. And perhaps the problem we need ahora is that to find someone in the United States, which is the most important country in, among those in the problem, to find someone who dare to tell the truth and tell that to the democratic, democratic scale, to the people, to convince that this war will be lost forever, that the prohibition is the business, that we have to separate the drug consumption and the addiction from the business. Milton Freeman told me, and this was said by Milton Freeman, and he said that the, the problem is a market problem, and prohibition is creating a huge and positive market for drug traffickers, and we can cut that, reduce it, considering that the production or cocaine or poppies is a simple thing and their high value comes only because of prohibition. Now our next step <coughs> must be to figure out how to sell this idea to American voters and politicians in order to change the American position on this subject. No external consensus can be imposed 
on a country like America. The change must come from inside, from the back streets of this great country. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator. I think your voice is very important in, in Colombia, and uh, uh, especially uh, in a country where uh, not everybody has the courage to stand up and say uh, what you just uh, said. Our next uh, speaker is from Uruguay. As many of you know, Uruguay is one of the most civilized countries in Latin America. So it won't be a surprise to hear him speak about his uh, uh, proposal there with respect to marijuana. Luis Alberto Lacalle Po is the Speaker of the House of Deputies in Uruguay. He is serving his second five-year term, his third, third five-year term as representative of the Department of Canelones uh, for the National Party. In November 2010, he introduced a bill to legalize the personal use of marijuana, the first full me first measure to, to aim at full legalization of marijuana in Latin America. Please help me welcome Mr. Lacalle. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, thanking the K2 Institute in the person of Juan Carlos Hidalgo for contacting me. Uh, this is a great opportunity to exchange experiences and charge my arguments and exchange arguments to strengthen our position. Experiences such as one told by the speaker from El Paso are strong. It's not only numbers, there are faces, there are people, there are families, and that, that, that's the, what we carry in our, in our minds and in our hearts. It also, it's a good time to strengthen our position. Sometimes we feel alone in this affair. And since I was elected for the first time in my country, more than 11 years ago, I knew that I was, to, I was going to try to introduce a, a bill in my parliament to change the national policy in this affair. It was only a, a matter of time I had to be mature enough or thinking that I was mature enough and to have the moral strength to sustain these arguments that I'm going to share with you. Why? I was sure to do, to get involved in this project it's simple, because I know drugs, because I consumed drugs when I was, uh, during my youth. I'm clean now, years ago. I can resist any blood exam or whatever. Uh, I know the ups and downs of the effects in drugs. I know where you should go to buy them. I know of the danger in the relationship between drug dealers and young boys who just want to break the limits. 
nowadays I have permanent meetings with families of youngsters addicted to several drugs, usually mothers. I have meetings with these boys when they are able to hear, not to follow an example, but to hear. And because I don't want to be like the example of the image of those monkeys that they don't see, they don't hear, and they don't speak. I don't like hypocrisy, I don't like falseness, and this issue has a lot of it. And either politicians speak uh, or treat this issue as, as a taboo, or they just give the back. As an example, uh, a year ago, a few years ago, I was speaking in the House of Parliament about this issue, and I asked, out of 99 congressmen who put up your hand who did on drugs, who was involved, when I was the only one. <laughs> I don't believe them. I just don't believe. And this, that's the worst approach we can have on this crucial affair, not telling the truth. After this personal history, that it can bring you near, but it not perhaps it's not the, the 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 reality of your country. I made a few questions that were answered by uh, former President Fernando Enrique Cardoso and colleagues from the, his commission, and they are very simple. Have banning policies been effective? No. Do the regulations show efficiency or they deserve better adaptation to the current situation? Yes. Not, they're not efficient. They have to be changed. And does the use of marijuana produce the same damage as, uh, as other drugs in my country? The answers, as I told you, were given by Cardoso, Gaviria, Cedillo, and the other colleagues, banning policies based on repression of production and distribution, as well as criminalization of consumption, has not produced the expected results. We are miles away from reaching the goal of eradication drugs. Answering these questions, my personal experience became the 13th November of 2010 to introduce a bill in Congress to legalize growing of marijuana for personal consumption. What's our legal system in Uruguay? I, I just heard the Vicente Fox, former president Vicente Fox. In Uruguay, the article 31 of the law that uh, refers to to drug affairs, says that it penalizes the possession when it's not for consumption. So if you possess drugs for consumption, you're having a right conduct, but you're not allowed to plant it, you're not allowed to buy it, you're not allowed to import it. Import it. So you recognize a right 
But at the same time, you have to commit an offense. Well, we have two, two ways. The first one, the easiest one, dry law to ban consumption. The examples around the world with alcohol says that the only ones who benefit from this, drug dealers. Profit for drug dealers. And there's another question, another strong point. If you ban consumption, the consumer, the consumer that may be an addict, is not anymore someone who has an illness. He's a criminal. So I ask, whose parents will take this boy, this girl? I usually speak about young people to a clinic or to the police or to a judge to find help. Nobody. You will be taking not uh, an ill person, you will be taking a criminal. So instead of curing him, he will be possibly in jail. The other option is to legalize a procedure to obtain the least harm harmful drug. Um, it's not only a matter of uh, exercising a right. It's a matter that if we f find this uh, way to legally obtain a uh, not so, so strong drug, I think we are trying to, uh, we can ban people from other drugs that are making lots of damage worldwide, but also especially in, in my country. It's not only the, the number of people doing drugs. It's each of them. I like during my, my, my duty to think person by person. If you only always think in numbers, you will mistake and you will not focus exactly on what's the problem. We have this uh, drug from 2002 strongly appearing in our country. It's called uh, pasta base, in, in Spanish, coke paste. It's cocaine, the rubbish of cocaine, the residue of cocaine, mixed with uh, grinded glass, kerosene, chloroform, ether, sulfuric acid, paraffin, benzene, and whatever a dealer thinks he had to put in this mixture. It has lots of physical changes. Uh, someone, so, some of them, you don't see them because in they're in the skin, in the brains. We usually see them when this boy kills a bus driver for $2. And appears in the newspapers, in the TV networks, and with 18 years, he'll be jailed for 10 years. That's the end of the path. And our responsibility is to look for the first steps in this relationship with the drugs.
it's like uh, 15, 17%. I know that uh, it's not easy to, to figure uh, numbers here because not only uh, all the people say the truth, but let's say 17% 17, uh, 17 of uh, drug consumption in Uruguay is this uh, pasta base, is, uh, pasta um, coca paste. But when, when it becomes to poorest regions, it's the 80% of drug consumption. You know that drugs is n are not democratic. This is an evidence that in, in, in regions where there is uh, lower income, the pasta base is uh, strengthened in, in market. And it's a, an excellent deal for a drug dealer. You go to the international market, they all want cocaine, they all want marijuana, ecstasy, LSD. They don't want pasta base. So they bring it to our countries. They sell it at a very, very low price. The dose is, let's say, a buck or two. But it's very effective on getting addicts. So when you are addicted to this drug, you will end the day needing up to $200 in your pocket to satisfy your needs. Who has 200 bucks to satisfy your needs at 13, 14, 15, 17 years? Nobody. So this becomes a circle when you have, you, you have the need of this drug and you sell this drug, and you're a criminal. This reinforces our need to decriminalize the growing of marijuana. It is proved that when marijuana um, doesn't enter to our country, the consumption of cocaine and pasta base, coca paste, blasts, goes up. Our goal is to decrease drug consumption. Uh, I don't want to, nobody to, to, to misunderstand my, our position. Uh, but we have to take these steps Senator Gomez just told us that uh, human beings since the start of history has re had relationships with drugs and it will be always like that. It's our duty to try to make a path in between these strong drugs that are killing our youth. Since we try to pass this bill that it's still sleeping in our parliament. The argument began on how many plants? And for me, that's a very conservative argument. It's uh, looking this issue from the pathology. We have as much as 200 boys and girls today in our country in jail 
for the only reason that they had plans. What are we telling them? If you do drugs, you have to buy to a drug dealer. If you have, to, if you have plans, you will be in jail. 200 people. They work, they study, they play music, they do sports, they have their families, they're in jail for having a plant. That looks wrong, very wrong. So in my, in, in my uh, project, it doesn't matter if you have one plant or 30 plants. If you have one plant and you sell it, you're trafficking. If you have 20 plants and you don't sell them, you're not trafficking. It's the attitude and not the quantity. We have some collateral support of this law, no? In our country, a drug dealer caught with 500 kilograms of cocaine and has, uh, um, he's found guilty and he will be in jail for 10 years. He can leave jail because the law provides it two years from he was found guilty. That that's makes me very angry, very angry. So the collateral support of these laws is to be very strong with people who either give money for buying drugs or the ones who just bring it to my country. I wanted to have the same uh, amount of years in jail as a homicide because this is what they're trying to do. In conclusion, concluding, without any doubt, the best course to follow is family values, a healthy society, education, motivation for sports, and other dissuasion actions to prevent people from consuming drugs. But without prejudice to the uh, aforementioned, it would be utopian to consider that we can get a drug-free society. I have no intention to justify the goodness of marijuana, but we gain important ground by trying that those who decide to consume do so by using the less harmful drugs. I'm in office, I believe in this, so it's my duty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We're going to shift gears now and hear from Ramesh Bhattacharji, who has worked for the Indian uh, Revenue Service for 35 years, spending most of his time on enforcement activities, collecting intelligence and taking action against narcotics, trafficking, money laundering, export and import frauds and smuggling. He served on the northern border of India, supervising illicit opium eradication uh, for many years after witnessing unsuccessful rehabilitation uh, programs there, he decided to uh, establish two rehabilitation centers in that region and from that began a campaign to lessen the severity of UN inspired laws in the late 1990s. He has also been uh, the narcotics commissioner, the drugs are I would say of, of India and chief commissioner of, of customs in the year 2006 he worked as a consultant with the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in Kabul, where he designed a 
a record-based regime of collecting intelligence and disseminating it efficiently on the Afghanistan-Iran border, and so uh, became quite knowledgeable about the drug trade in Afghanistan and uh, how that works. Please help me welcome Mr. Bhattacharya. Thank you very much. I must <coughs> have to thank Kato for this privilege of being here. It is <coughs> done me a great honor. I'll start about my. The U.S. <coughs> God bless it is preventing its people from taking drugs in milligrams, but is unable to staunch the supply in tons. <coughs> Afghanistan is the second poorest country in the world. It is no surprise then that 60% of opium farmers have given poverty as a reason for cultivating opium. 90% of the world's opium comes from here and only 1% of the world's seizures is done here. And the war on drugs has only jailed many of its 1 million drug users, a few cultivators and no big trafficker. This UNODC map gives an idea of how not only its neighbors are threatened but distant North America too, which got about <coughs> 19 tons in 2009 and 22 tons in 2010. The reasons why the present approach is a failure uh, lie in the omissions and commissions of the past 30 years. Afghanistan produces the most opi uh, opium and heroin, but without Pakistan's help, its trafficking would be impossible. Helpful conditions in Pakistan assure traffickers with protected routes. On both sides of the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan are people who have filial, cultural, and economic ties with each other, none more steady than the three-decade-old one of narcotics. The first map shows the entire 2,643 kilometers long border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and the routes that heroin and opium take. Opium, 150 tons at least, remains in Pakistan, but much of the heroin goes all over the world. <coughs> Most of the bulk trafficking routes are in the southwesterly Baluchistan region of Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran. Till the 80s, opium was cultivated in the shaded portions of the second map in Pakistan. After the US, and UN bribed and forced out opium cultivators in Pakistan uh, in the 80s. The tribes took their poppy fields uh, to Afghanistan. Till the 1970s, the opium produced in Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan, sorry, was for personal use and <coughs> medicinal. After the Soviet invasion of 1979, the US started helping the Mujahideen more, and to help them self-finance the f war, encourage them to grow opium. According to a 19, uh, uh, September 1987 article in the now uh, deceased Covert Action magazine, the much-quoted William Von Berger had written that between 1980 and 1986, the U.S. is estimated to have given around $625 million to the Mujahideen. It was by now clear 
that the US, the main financier of the war against the Soviets, was not interested in exterminating opium at the expense of the goodwill of the Mujahideen and the Taliban. The DA, the only organization sincerely trying to check this trafficking, was forced to cut <coughs> its strength to two from 22 agents in the 80s. CIA agents replaced them. Sorry, this bar chart uh, shows how, as the Mujahideen started controlling more and more of Afghanistan, opium production increased. And it did not stop even after April 2002, when the US-led forces had taken over control of Afghanistan. And as this table shows, illicit cultivation in Pakistan is also slowly increasing, that one over there. <coughs> All this ought to be an embarrassment for the present US-led occupation forces. This is uh, that article I referred to, but I'd like to point out your attention to this um, quotation from Mr. Charles Kogan. He was uh, the CIA man responsible for the war in Afghanistan. It's gone. Yeah. Ah, sorry, thank you. Yeah, I know it's coming. This is <coughs> what he had said. And it's an irony that not many uh, listen to the saner voices of reason at that time. I think by now it is abundantly clear that winning the Cold War at <coughs> this cost was not worth it. The US would have won it uh, uh, in any case because of this perennial advantage of its strong free uh, society. One of the many persons to prosper in narcotics was uh, Jumma Khan. This is his uh, <coughs> mansion in Zaranj, headquarters of Nimroz uh, province in the southwest of Afghanistan. No other house matches its opulence or security phobia. His house is across the road from the governor's office and two kilometers from Afghan narcotics force camp in Ziranj. Yet no one could do anything about him. Brazenly, caravans escorted by gun trucks such as this one, which incidentally belonged to a rival, would come and go unchecked. He ran only after he tried to assassinate the governor uh, who lived across the road. In 2000, Jumma Khan was the main negotiator between the Taliban and the US in discussions leading to the so-called ban on poppy cultivation. In 2003, he was arrested for drug smuggling by the US forces. Inexplicably, uh, inexplicably he, released he was released immediately. He became immensely wealthy through uh, drug trafficking and bought properties in Dubai, Kabul, and Ziraj. He was arrested from in Indonesia in 2009, extradited to the US, and has not been heard of since then. In Time magazine of 8th of February 2004, Assistant Secretary of State, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, Bobby Charles, observed he is obviously very tightly tied to the Taliban. There are certain linkages among Khan, Mullah Umar, and Bin Laden that have to be recognized. There are many more pampered jades like him. These are some other cases that I have given of uh, <coughs> people who were 
encouraged by the US-led forces. One of them is Sher Mohammed Khan Akhundzada, from whose house, Governor's Palace, the DA had recovered nine tons of uh, opium. Then there's this uh, Isatullah Wasafi, who was arrested in, <coughs> uh, in Las Vegas for possession of two kilos of uh, heroin in 1988. He was sentenced to four years of imprisonment, but got out, I think, somewhat earlier, and then was made in charge of anti-corruption in this present Karzai government. He was there for two years before a lot of protests against him got him out. Then there was this Ahmad Wali Karzai, brother of the president, who by all accounts was <coughs> involved in all kinds of drug trade. This map shows <coughs> how conveniently uh, located Afghanistan is to spread its only product around the world. Pakistan continues to be the route most favored for heroin to flow out. In these days of precise <coughs> donor strikes, and when there's continuous monitoring from the skies of all movements across borders with Afghanistan, it is inconceivable that large shipments can cross borders undetected, and yet they do. <coughs> Fighting narcotics trafficking is still not a uh, stop strategy. On the other side, I've given some uh, figures showing how much crosses and the kind of chemicals that come across uh, to produce heroin, and they all do it very easily. This is a picture of uh, <coughs> the Afghan border with Iran at Kurki in Lake Sistan in Nimrod province, right under the guns and noses of an Afghan customs post and a border police post have these tankers and trucks come from uh, <coughs> Iran to offload petrol, chemicals, cooking gas, and many other smuggled goods. No official bothers to check. The, they're right there watching it all happen or even to saunter over to inquire what they're carrying. It is no wonder that acetic anhydride, the most important precursor chemical to refine opium into heroin, is the cheapest in this province at $300 a liter. Just as in adjacent Iran province of Zubol, opium is the cheapest. On Pakistan's side, the check posts are very efficiently administered, but heroin and opium simply slip through. These are pictures taken last month of Torkham, the well-fortified Afghanistan-Pakistan border crossing point on the Jalalabad-Peshawar uh, road. On both sides of the border are several markets selling heroin and opium openly. I had asked a friend to take pictures of heroin and opium being bought and sold. He was not allowed to do so, as after a recent BBC documentary on how easy it is to obtain narcotics, these people have become camera shy, yet not shy enough to sell it. The next photograph is that of an uh, uh, Afghan village called Marko. There are many villages like this where <coughs> opium uh, is and opium and heroin are sold freely. And uh, uh, enforcement is boringly predictable in doing nothing. I have to revert to this bar chart again just to show uh, attract attention to that little dip in 2001 which shows, according to the UNODC, that 180 tons were, <coughs> were produced by Afghanistan under the Taliban. This 
is a chart to explain to another uh, to, uh, to explain and another instance of closing up to the Taliban. <coughs> uh, this was the fall. Uh, this fall over 280 tons was the was what consecrated the Taliban as a principal group in the eyes of the U.S. media and many other governments. Never mind their persecution of women. The real story is different. It illustrates how public health was sacrificed to appease the god of commerce. U.S. oil companies, eager to tap the immense gas reserves in Turkmenistan, wanted a pipeline from Meri or Merv through Herat and Nimroz in Afghanistan to Gwadar on Pakistan's west coast. To justify such a project, the Taliban's, the Taliban's image as opium producers would have had to be changed for the American public. UNODC and U.S. governments got the Taliban to promise that they would not grow opium in March 2001. An obedient delegation from eight Western countries and the UN were led by Taliban and Pakistanis to those areas where there was no cultivation. And on return, they detoured the optimism of the West and certified that Taliban had kept their promise. The truth was that a very severe drought had leveled their opium crops just as it had done all their other crops. There was these graphs show the seizures in the region uh, all around, as, as well as uh, the, <coughs> the in increase in addiction, uh, which indicates that there was actually not much, <coughs> uh, uh, there was not much difference in the opium and heroin that was supplied. India, alarmed by attempts to take, uh, make the Taliban into little darlings, completed a satellite survey of some cultivation areas in 2000 and 2001. Photographs, uh, soil and vegetable sa vegetation samples and of, uh, and of other crops from some regions in the south were collected. These satellite pictures of fields in Nangarhar, taken in April 2000 and 2001, show that opium was sown as usual. And in fact, in this picture, it shows there is an increase in 2001. Achin incidentally has one of the largest concentration of heroin <coughs> refineries in Afghanistan. The yellow pixels are uh, opium fields. This one just sh shows uh, areas where the there has been reduction over the pr previous year. This, uh, these two maps show the route where the pipeline was originally planned from uh, Meri in uh, uh, Turkmenistan to Gwadar, uh, which is there yeah, this, uh, in, uh, in Pakistan, and for which all these things were done. 9-11 should have put an end to that, but it didn't. The new government took to dealing with some of the old Taliban and Mujahideen again. The only way out of this never-ending and uncontrollable increase in opium production is to legalize opium cultivation. This <coughs> is uh, the licensing process which I have explained. Actually, because of time, I have to hurry up, but it's in my <laughs> written uh, account. And all the, the pr procedure is given, and how it could be done. This procedure is imitating uh, the Indian one, but it's slightly adapted to Pakistan, uh, to Afghanistan's needs. So this uh, uh, suggests uh, tracking uh, each and every uh, uh, plant in the each and every aspect of the plant's growth till its uh, 
received. But legalization alone will not be sufficient. To be effective, this scheme will have to consider about 3 million opiate users in the neighboring countries of Afghanistan. If they do not get their dosage, they will ensure that illicit opium cultivation continues. To deal with this problem, all these users could be registered, given opium through government offices and uh, uh, dispensaries in the affected regions of the uh, region, in the, in the affected countries of the region. It is not a preposterous suggestion. It was briefly tried in India till the UN single convention came. Then, after much protests, it was uh, again retried in 1972, and for about a decade, it contained drug addiction. Legalization was <coughs> trashed by a lot of people because they said that there is. Uh, it will encourage, there is not enough demand for morphine and it will encourage corruption. Demand, <coughs> uh, about demand uh, figures now have come from the WHO which says that actual demand is now seven times the amount that is, uh, <coughs> that was reported earlier. So in, in effect it means that there will be uh, actually a shortage of opium if we have to provide morphine to the entire country. Corruption, <coughs> according to some research that I have done, will actually come down. Right now, the, 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 the farmer, the opium farmer gives money to the Taliban. He gives money to the, uh, to the, uh, the uh, Afghan narcotics force and others. With this, if it is legalized, all this money will be stopped. The European Parliament <coughs> in 21-9-2007 had recommended legalization, but as America did not support, they, it never saw uh, much action. The bad news is that as these figures show, that all the figures have gone all right, no enforcement, nothing. And after 10 years of uh, <coughs> cultivation, has not been cur curbed. And this is just to show how <coughs> abysmal all attempts at enforcement have has been. I'll end now with these uh, two pictures from an Indian magazine of 2001. The lower picture was taken in 1989 during President Najibullah's declining years, and the top one in 1999 when the Taliban were in control. I don't think we can see this kind of joy in our lifetime unless appeasement is no more an option. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have time for questions. If you have any questions, raise your hand and uh, I'll call on you. Uh, there is a question in the back. Ra raise your hand, please. My name is Paula Gordon. Uh, I've been involved with the drug issue since the 60s, from, from when I, uh, at Berkeley, when I first heard uh, Timothy Leary speak. I was involved in a legitimate experiment with psilocybin, and I followed the use of drugs among the white middle class youngsters, young people at that time, and started a nonprofit organization after I discovered how very serious the harmful effects were. I wanted to bring your attention to two websites. Um, somebody had raised a question about research into the effects of marijuana. Um, there is a 
website called gordondrugabuseprevention.com and there is a, another um, website uh, called uh, harmful effects of uh, spiritual harm of marijuana.com um, what I would ask you is what do you uh, what do you know about the civil liberties implications of the contact high effect that one can get from being in proximity to someone who is high on marijuana or who is um, as a result of uh, or as a result of the passive inhalation of marijuana smoke and what do you think the implications of this are for a society which relies on the health mental health psychological well-being uh, and, and spiritual health okay. of its citizens. Okay. I don't know that this is actually a question that this panel has any expertise on, uh, but if anybody wants to, to answer that, go ahead. No. I think, I think the next panel uh, is actually a more appropriate uh, panel to address uh, that issue if they, if they choose. There's a question right in front by Mary. Uh, my question, this is Mary O'Grady from the Wall Street Journal. My question is for Mr. Bhattacharya. Sorry. Um, I just wasn't quite clear on how, how this would work, the idea. I mean, I've heard in the past the idea that somehow we could pay the uh, poppy growers in Afghanistan uh, to grow legally and that way remove the criminality um, in, in the region. That makes sense to me sort of in a general sense. But um, uh, uh, the, the, the people are growing poppy because there's a big profit in it, and there's a big profit in it because it's prohibited. So um, if the government starts buying the poppy crop, uh, what, I, how does that work in terms of pricing? I mean, do they pay the illegal market price, or do they pay some other price? And if they, if they don't pay the price that they would pay under a prohibited... Uh, in, in a prohibited environment, then isn't there a whole market for people who would be growing and selling to in the illegal market? And so isn't there a problem with pricing? And I guess uh, connected to that, <coughs> if you're paying the black market price, which is the higher price, doesn't everybody in the, in the country then become a poppy grower? Because it's a very lucrative business. So I'm just not sure how that works. In, in theory, it sounds good, but realistically, yeah. it never the, seemed uh, to work for me. Pricing Thank should you. not be uh, much of a problem because at the moment, the, say the <coughs> price is about $260 per kilo. The farmer gets, uh, I think, less than three-fourths of it. He has to pay 10% to the Taliban, definitely because they have uh, the Taliban has a representative in each. Uh, village uh, opium growing village council they take the 10 percent straight away then they have to pay extortion money to the uh, afghan na narcotics force to the border police to the afghan national army so as a result it cuts into his profits a farmer uh, would definitely prefer to lead a, a legal life as long even if he gets m slightly less or much less even because uh, the money that he gets from opium is much more than what he can get from any other crop does that answer, or you would like me to? <coughs> Question over here, right in the middle, please. 
My name is Chip Williams. I'm not with any organization. But I'd like the panel to speak uh, to the connection between the funding, the, the United States prohibition of drugs funds the Taliban. And we're at war with the Taliban. So isn't our policy directly putting our troops uh, in danger and costing U.S. lives? It's uh, finally a contradictory policy because they are really not going all out to to get the, the Taliban at least the, the, the drug making the drug trafficking connections. I have just given a few instances, but there are many, many, many more. And in fact, it is actually threatening to the U.S. forces also. Now you may have heard reports uh, repeatedly coming over the past two, two or three years that increasingly U.S. troops have started taking uh, opium and uh, heroin. And in fact, uh, one of the reasons why Tajikistan wants uh, the U.S. base at Manas evicted is because the, uh, the addiction around the U.S. base of, the Ma of Manas and in the uh, capital Bishkek is increasing f enormously. So this is something which policymakers will have to think about. I <laughs> am not unable to. I am unable to give a solution for this, but it is. Ex I mean, I find it uh, paradoxical. In fact, that's one of the points that Secretary Schultz made. You didn't see it on the video today, but we'll be releasing it later in connection to Afghanistan, where he said that our policy is actually strengthening our enemies. So I think that he would probably agree with that point of view. Did you have a question? Luis Pazara, Wilson Center. Could you speak it up, please? Yes. My question is for Mr. Lacay. I, I am not sure to get the meaning of your project, the rationale of your project. I, for this reason, I, I asked the question. Um, it seems to me that uh, your idea is to canalize the consumption of drugs to marijuana through legalization so that you can avoid first the narco trafficker and second to go to harder stronger drugs but uh, well maybe it's possible but uh, even if it's uh, successful that if the, the law produces that uh, result um, the narco traffic wouldn't be out of uh, market I mean there is a market for the narco traffic to go on in spite of this law and uh, for the consequence of the narco-traffic in terms of the process of erosion that produce the narco-traffic in the state institutions, especially judiciary, police, and so on. Uh, so why not legalize the, the drugs, simply, not only marijuana? My arguments are not scientific, firstly. I, I, we won't ban drug dealing. We have to try to bring it to lower numbers. Um, why marijuana, not other drugs? Because of the conduct that uh, marijuana, or the effects that marijuana make on, on people uh, compared to other drugs? Because only s in our country, perhaps not m more than seven out of 100 uh, marijuana consumers are problematic is the 
the drugs that is mo most sold in our country. Because as I explained, the legal system is contradictory. Either we ban consumption or we make this uh, gap to, to plant their plants. And you can't start running if you don't start to walk. I don't know if we have to run, but I know that we have to walk from aside as the system is today. Um, I'm not the owner of the truth, but the, the reality is very strong and we have to change it. This is my idea and uh, the one that uh, important people in the world, such as Fernando Enrique, Cardoso, Cedillo, Gaviria, Paulo Coelho, Vargallosa, and lots of people that are much more intelligent and uh, were in duty in, in the countries are the way that they are, they are finding, and that's my, that's a, not my argument, but it's a strong argument. Well, in the next panel, we're gonna look at actual uh, possible ways to, to uh, reform, including legalization, and uh, what's important to keep in mind, and I think we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, some key principles. Uh, yes, <coughs> in, in the back, right there, please. And I think this will be the last question. Ooh, I feel guilty now. Um, <coughs> I'm Andy Coe from Open Society Foundation. I actually have a cultural question. Um, and, and I'll preface this, this in a, in a um, focus group. I once heard someone say when asked, is alcohol a drug? And she said no. And she insisted, no, it's not a drug. And they, she was asked why. And she said, because it's food. Wine is food. And today I was reading um, a statement, an interview with um, President Santos. And he said that he would legalize uh, or consider legalizing marijuana and cocaine, but never opiates, because opiates are suicidal. The use of opiates are suicidal. So it strikes me that it's really connected to culture, and the politics of drugs are very connected to culture. And how do you resolve that? Because on the one hand, we're talking about opiates, we're talking about marijuana, um, President Santos included, included cocaine. It, it seems to me that that's really balled up in the problem here, is that we haven't found a way to resolve our use and our view of drugs culturally and then put that into some sort of a regulated framework. And I'm just wondering if you could address that. Thanks. I, I can assure that it's uh, United Nations is decided to treat on this issue. We should have a worldwide uh, solution, but uh, we just see or listen to speeches. So I have to go to my country and my culture. So. I'm uh, inclined to, to talk about this um, growing for personal consumption of marijuana because of our system of drug dealing or our system in drugs. The uh, coca paste, I don't know if it exists in other places. I hear crack here is similar, but the effects that they are creating in our use, I have to think about my country. If uh, tomorrow, President Obama and other important politicians around the world decide to uh, apply certain pol politics in this issue, we will think worldwide. In Mr. Lacaya's defense, I will note that he is maybe the only actual politician in office that is advocating this kind of move. And uh, even President Cardoso himself has noted that uh, Politicians, once they leave office, start advocating uh, 
reform and even legalization, and that might come up when he speaks uh, later today. Did you want to say something along these lines? No? I'm afraid we've run out of time. We can take a break now. Thanks very much, and thank our panel.